a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh, I've got so much to share with you today. And yes, every bit of it is based in wrong think. Every bit of it is encouraging you to think for yourself. What that means in its purest form is you don't have to agree with me. I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to think you're stupid. I'm not going to think you're evil. I'm not going to call you names. I'm not going to set out to own you as if that were something to be proud of. In fact, I'm going to go off on just a little bit of a tangent, just just at the beginning here, because I've been watching a very interesting battle take place on Twitter. And I know there's a lot of back and forth on Twitter. Everybody's trying to own the others, own the libs, own the, the magas, whatever. Anyway, Matt Walsh, who I think is actually one of the more rational voices out there, um, basically he took after a, a particularly high-profile a uh, trans person, and now I can't remember the uh, I can't remember the the trans person's name. Oh well. Anyway, uh, this individual visited the White House recently and is just very, very front and center about uh, everything that's so cool about being trans. And Matt Walsh <clears throat> went after this this individual. I want to say this this person's name is Devin Mulroney. Anyway. Uh, it was a pretty good dressing down. I mean, it was it was very personal. It was, you know, you are you are an ugly person. There is nothing good or redeeming about you. Very public, very pointed. And the criticisms that Matt has had of the the whole uh the activism, the LGBTQ trans, you know, hey kids, let's explore your gender. Let's get you right to the clinic and get that surgery started. Matt's been right on, and he's actually been very successful. In, in getting different uh, different clinics like the one at uh, Vanderbilt University shut down because once it became public that, uh, what, you're doing what to minors? They backtracked faster than a crawdad, you know, feeling threatened. I mean, they were really not wanting that to be out there in the open. Kind of makes you wonder if, well, if your conscience is clear, would you would you backtrack like that? Nonetheless, when it comes to calling people out, Matt has really offended a number of people on the the right, particularly some libertarians, some young libertarians who, despite you know their libertarian tendencies, are fairly woke. They they want a virtue signal, and that's that's one of the downsides of of wokeness. And it's just it's been so interesting to see it going back and forth and back and forth. And well, how are you going to change people's minds? You know, and and it really comes down to you're going to change them through brute force, or are you going to change them through persuasion? Now, there comes a point, though, where the persuasion becomes more of, hey, look, really, we're, we're very much like you. But I, I don't know how to say this nicely. The level of weirdness that is currently being forced on us, I don't want to have things in common with that much weirdness. Now, that doesn't mean that now I, that mean I, I have a license now to go out and abuse people or treat them poorly. I don't believe that. I don't want to treat people any different than I would want to be treated. The, the golden rule really works. It's a great measure. Regardless of whether you're a religious person or not, if you treat other people the way that you would rather be treated, it's going to be very hard to go wrong. 
So basically, you have sides lining up on Matt is uh, too hard and too harsh in his approach versus, uh, but that's the only thing that works, and, and you need to be kinder and you need to be gentler. And I Look, I don't have the answer, but I will tell you this. From what I've seen in my own experience of trying to open people's minds or at least get them to consider a viewpoint that they weren't previously considering or weren't previously ready to embrace, the most tried and true formula that I have found is to speak to other people from a position of love. And that doesn't mean that you can't take a good, firm stand and be firm in your beliefs, but I guess it means we have to question, why are we, why are we commenting on a person? I don't believe in public call-outs. Now, I've given a few in my life, and frankly, they're great entertainment. And uh, The last time I administered one, I think it was to Mr. Snarly, um, I had people contacting me for days afterwards saying how fun it was to listen to me, you know, verbally use him as a punching bag. And while at the time I was upset, he, he had menaced a friend of mine, uh, just a kindly old man in the grocery store, and, and I thought it was a really cowardly thing to do. So I called him out uh, on the air, and I, you know, I basically told him exactly what I thought of him. I don't think that was the right thing to do on my part. Okay. I think he was totally in the wrong to sit there and menace my friend. But at the same time, that was not the best way to handle it. I think that uh, you can do more good. If somebody needs to be called out, a personal message, a private message is a better way to, to broach that kind of a topic than to sit there and, hey, I'm going to humiliate you in front of everybody. All that's going to do is make somebody dig deeper into their position and, and get their defenses up. You're not going to change their mind or anybody who's, you know, sitting on the sidelines watching probably isn't going to change their mind. The people who agree with them are just going to agree with them more strongly because, well, you're behaving like a monster. And the people who agree with you are just going to cheer and enjoy the spectacle as they eat popcorn. So the tried and true formula of speak the truth with love, lose the need to win, that's really the most important component of that. That's the thing that I have seen actually change people's minds. And, and, and hot on its heels comes the, the question when you're given the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody who has a very diametrically opposed point of view to your own, you can ask them, what exactly have you experienced that has shaped your thinking or that, that has led you to believe this so strongly? And you're not asking it in an accusatory way. What made you such a nut job that you would dare disagree with me? It's more along the lines of, seriously, tell me, what did you experience that, that has caused you to, to be so firm in your belief of whatever this is, you know? And if you really listen to them, Okay, in other words, you don't just ask that question. It's not a rhetorical trick to, ha, ha, now I'm going to spring the trap. But if you actually listen to them, more often than not, you're going to find that there is something that they have experienced. Whether it was their own pain or maybe it was somebody else's pain, some injustice of some sort that they experienced that led them in that direction. Now, you may not change their mind. They may not change your mind. But you will have honestly given them a chance to tell you where they're coming from. By opening that door, perhaps they'll give you a chance to explain where you're coming from. But even if you don't, it is still far more productive than the, the verbal beat down, which I know it's, it's fun, it's entertaining, entire industries have been built off of it. 
but it really accomplishes nothing. And now it's causing a lot of infighting on the political right. You know, it's, these people are sniping at each other and, and uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, who is more modest than thou? Well, I certainly I am. You know? <laughs> anyway, if you want to change minds, you have got to harness the power of attraction. Leonard, Leonard Reed talked about this. And that means knowing your principles, really knowing them to the point that uh, you not only can expound on them when someone asks you, hey, what does this mean? But where people can just see by observing the way that you live your life, the way that you treat other people, the way that you speak, they can see that there's something to you. They can, they can sense the light in whatever you're doing. Now, I get it. This may sound idealistic. And for, for people who are you know fed up and basically kind of spoiling for a fight, that's not going to be as satisfying as, well, I just want to, I want to punch him out with my words, maybe my fists if things get to that point. It's not the productive way to go, even though it may feel good. Persuasion, not coercion, is, is the rule if you're really standing in the interest of freedom, if you're standing up for truth. Truth doesn't need you to use it like a blunt force object to get it through people's heads. Okay, I'm going to stop here because I feel like I'm lecturing now and I don't, uh, again, I'm no expert here, but I am someone who used to throw red meat and used to yell at people and, and, and engage in the verbal beatdowns. And I get why, why it's entertainment. I get why people, people love the equivalent of a good public stoning. But I'm much more concerned with, are we able to change people's minds? Are we giving someone an alternative? And if you're going to do that, you got to come at it from a place of, look, I'm genuinely concerned about this person. No matter how offensive they may be behaving at the moment, I've got to see them as a prize to be won more so than an enemy to be vanquished. And for some people, that's asking a lot, right? That's, that's a hard mindset to, to gain. But that's where the magic happens. That's where you become a more effective advocate of whatever it is that you're standing for. And I know it sounds trite, but you got to come at it from a place of love as opposed to a place of anger or a place of, I'm going to make you say uncle, and you will admit how right I am, and then I will leave you curled up in a fetal position, sucking your thumb and crying quietly. Too many movies, you know, tend to promote that. <laughs> as, as the, see, that's how you win. Nope. You win by opening minds and hearts that were snapped shut like a steel trap. And it takes time and it takes patience. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, thanks for letting me get all that off my chest in the first segment there. I... It's just been bugging me. Not that I need to correct everybody around me, but I just see a great opportunity being missed. So for what it's worth, there's there's my two cents. Well, you know, it's kind of a sad truth of our time that the lust to control other people is stronger than ever. And boy, did it come out in spades during the COVID lockdowns. You know, the masking and, and so forth, really. And, and of course, the mandated vaccines really brought out the the totalitarian that unfortunately lurks within each one of us. We all have a little tyrant. We all have to learn how to control that tyrant. The really, really good people 
eventually learned to exile that tyrant to some island far away and never really let him see the light of day. But the first thing we have to do if we're serious about doing this is learn how to break free of herd mentality. And I've got an article here from Bruce Barris, Break Away from the Woke Herd. Now, he starts with a quote from Will Rogers, Always drink upstream from the herd. That sounds like pretty sound cowboy advice with a little bit of humor. Bruce Barris says, We all are members of a herd of one category or another. A football team could be a herd, a marching band, a church, the armed forces, a riot or activist march, or a political party. Herds that represent a cause can be liberal or conservative, radical or passive, loud or quiet, hidden or out in the open, ants run in herds, cattle, birds, fish, and people. He says, would you call woke a herd mentality? And his answer is, I would. It's hard to identify every woke action or statement as part of the herd. Some woke demands are small, some are large. Woke hits in every corner. Without question, woke has followers in mass numbers. And he says, I wonder if people who practice woke know what he is representing. The woke world is a classic mountain of sophomoric thought and high school mentality, but it must be taken seriously. Find something to complain about, and the herd rushes in. Remove a statue, rename a place, call people racist, use pronouns, forget history, or even worse, try to replace history with some made-for-today new history. Never have so few tried to control so many. So the point here is the danger in woke is the herd. Are we built just to follow like a flock of birds, or are we back to finding out how many people can stuff themselves into a phone booth, or how the nitpicking of of words into a new meaning? Woke, he says, is the new hippie. The hippie wants people to listen to his crazy ideas, wants to change the world, has a new and different campaign every week. Woke is not leadership. It is the opposite. Woke is a bunch of wimps screaming at the top of their lungs for justice. Woke will not be a career. Woke will not feed your family. Woke will not fix anything. Woke is just a passing fancy with a little long-term, with little long-term value. Just like all the great fads of the past, woke will be a memory. Why does the world take anyone woke seriously? But people do. Woke is not L or C. It's not uh, R or D. Woke is not socialism trying to get a foothold on young people's thought. Woke is just a fad. Now he says, how do I know that woke is just a fad? Easy. First, never underestimate good old competition. Second, woke has gone too far with stupid ideas and has been caught in the lie, so it's going to die a fad's death. Today in America, more than 60 million people will go to work to support themselves and their families. Woke lives on the fringe running around promising that its ideas have meaning or will improve societal issues. Woke does not improve anything. It's just a bunch of noise. Now, he says, life is a competition. Do you think a political campaign isn't competition? Do you think people don't like sports? Do you think some kids want to excel while others are on a different track? Woke allows the others to seem like winners. But in reality, they're just childish players. Why not eliminate the Olympics? Doesn't everyone deserve a medal? Would you eliminate ranks in the military? Would you stop playing horseshoes? People are naturally competitive. And of course, woke has found its way into our everyday lives. What do you think when a person says, men can have babies? What do you think when Title IX became a sham for men to compete as women? 
What do you think when pronouns become so important that anyone who disagrees is an outcast? What do you think when the herd rushes to the next topic, like racism? What should we think when the academic world buys into woke? Have well-educated PhDs become infected? Are we training our young to think differently about careers, work, family, and definitions of rights? Name something where woke has actually improved life. Okay, that's a good point right there. Bruce Barris says it's time to wake up. We don't live in a perfect world, never have, never will. It's time to become a responsible individual, an adult. He says, sorry, but you must work to support yourself and your family. Sorry, but you must live in an imperfect world. Sorry, but everyone's not going to be treated equally. Sorry, but slavery still exists. Yes, it does. Sorry, but someone who works hard will get the promotion. Sorry, but someone who works for a full career will retire with dignity. Sorry, but crap happens. It's funny that over the course of history, some people think they can change life. And in some cases, they have met with success. Communal living has been tried, mostly without success. Eliminating the legal system has been tried without success. In the evolution of different countries from rulers to semi-socialism forms of government, that's been tried mostly without success. Centralized government control over everything has been tried without success. This awful world is not awful. See, his point here is that philosophers come and go. Throughout history, some great philosophers have argued for a variety of societal changes. It's safe to say that the one constant is change. We want people to be well taken care of. We do want to live well. We do want food, shelter, medical, and clothing. We do want to live without oppression. Rather, Success and equal treatment comes with steady progress. We're not going to change to some utopian life in one giant leap. To claim that we've not made progress on societal issues is to ignore reality. To say that we don't have a way to go is also to ignore reality. So Bruce Barris says, a very simple solution. Promise everyone a decent education based on individual accomplishment. Promise everyone a job and let the best workers get the promotions and better pay. Promise action against unethical or unlawful behavior. Sorry, but the end does not justify the means. Freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior apply to life as well as education. Generally, a freshman is just a beginner and needs to learn how to get promoted to sophomore. And we need to get back to that mentality. Skip grades in knowledge and experience, and you'll regret the outcome. So he says, let's break away from the woke herd. We will continue to evolve more by going back to the same formula that made us great. School, work, honesty, and individualism. Tell the wokes that we are not buying their stupid ideas. Now, when he talks about this from a standpoint of individualism, I think he's right on to something here. And especially when it comes to, to your uh, education, education really is about the individual. And I would draw a distinction between schooling and education. Schooling is about uh, basically socialization of the masses. I don't mean that in the socialist sense, but, you know, just basically learning your social skills, getting, you know, the understanding of what's expected of you in society. This is one of the reasons why I kind of chafe at the idea of it being controlled by the state. Because that means whoever's in power is going to have undue influence over a kid's socialization. But education is much more of an individual approach. And this is where I want to urge you, if you're not already, to consider becoming 
a lifelong learner. It can happen just sitting there on your couch. All it requires is a commitment of time, and it could be 30 minutes a day if that's if that's all you have to spare, but the time to sit and to read books that teach you something. That would mean classics. That would mean books that are actually over your head. I know, that's a daunting thing. But I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't been willing to do myself. And I will admit, yes, it was very hard. Diving into the classics of Western literature, it takes a real commitment, but you build your muscles, your mental muscles grow quickly, and you'll be surprised to find how quickly you can start to have real understanding, self-education. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and also TMCP Nation. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast Nation. That would be my friend, John Harvey. I've got links to each of these in my show notes. You can check them out for yourself at TheBrianHydeShow.com. So critical race theory. It's a thing. And as much as people try to pretend, well, it's not even being taught in our schools, it is. Just rarely is it being taught under the banner of, oh, yes, this is critical race theory. They give it other euphemistic names and sometimes have to sneak it in the back door. But the idea is it's, it's teaching race relations and gender identity and, and racial identity as, as the key to understanding our history. And what's funny is when people point out, hey, well, this is really giving a distorted view or rewriting of history. The accusation you'll hear hurled in return is, well, you just don't want to feel bad about the bad things that have happened. I want to say from the very get-go, something like slavery, I think reasonable people can look at that and say, whoa, that that was a big mistake. But also was a mistake that was solved at another time by other people. It was solved long ago. I've never owned a slave. You've never owned a slave. Nobody within our, our existence right now has lived as a slave. So why are we talking things like, well, we must atone for this original sin and we must pay reparations. And No, nope. That's just, that's just somebody who's out there grifting and trying to use guilt, weaponized guilt, as a means of obtaining power over other people. Now, if you want to understand the history of slavery that you probably weren't taught in school, I'm going to recommend a great article from Larry Reed. That's Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. He says slavery cannot be justified or excused by enlightened people, but it can be studied, explained, put in context, and understood if all the facts of it are in the equation. In fact, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education just published a, a... an article called Recognizing Hard Truths About America's History with Slavery. In that article, Larry Reed urged an assessment of slavery that includes its full historical and cultural context and doesn't neglect uncomfortable facts that too often are swept under the rug. He says the central notion of both that previous essay and this follow-up is that slavery was the global norm for centuries, not a peculiar American institution. 
In fact, he says America is not exceptional because of slavery in our past. We may, however, be exceptional because of the lengths to which we went to get rid of it. In any event, it's an age-old tragedy abolished in most places only recently, meaning during the past two centuries or so. As British historian Dan Jones notes in Powers and Thrones, a new history of the Middle Ages, quote, slavery was a fact of life throughout the ancient world. Slaves, people defined as property, forced to work, stripped of their rights, and socially dead, could be found in every significant realm of the age. In China, the Qin, Han, and Xin dynasties enforced various forms of slavery. So too did ancient rulers of Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, and India. Now Larry Reed goes on to say Milton Meltzer's Slavery, A World History, is both comprehensive and riveting in its presentation. He too recognizes the ubiquity of human bondage. Quote, The institution of slavery was universal throughout much of history. It was a tradition everyone grew up with. It seemed essential to the social and economic life of the community, and man's conscience was seldom troubled by it. Both slave and master looked upon it as inevitable. The slave might be of any color, white, black, brown, yellow. The physical differences did not matter. Warriors, pirates, and slave dealers were not concerned with the color of a man's skin or the shape of his nose. Now, the indigenous populations of both North and South America, pre-European settlement, also practiced slavery. Meltzer writes, the Aztecs made certain crimes punishable by enslavement. An offender against the state, a traitor, say, was auctioned off into slavery, with the proceeds going into the state treasury. Among the Mayans, a man could sell himself or his children into slavery. The comparative rich Nukas, Nutkas rather, of Cape Flattery in what's now northwestern Washington state, were notorious promoters of slaving. They spurred Vancouver tribes to attack one another so that they could buy the survivors. End quote. Now, Larry Reed says perhaps it is because conflicts with race-based political agendas, or because it conflicts with those race-based political agendas, slavery of Africans by fellow Africans is one of those uncomfortable truths that often flies under the radar. Likewise, industrial-scale slavery of Africans by nearby Arabs, as well as Arab slavery, rather, of Europeans, are historical facts that are frequently ignored. He recommends a couple of books here. Both subjects are explored in The Forgotten Slave Trade, The White European Slaves of Islam by Simon Webb, and Slavery and Slaving in American History by Sean Stilwell. Slavery, he says, cannot be justified or excused by enlightened people, but it can be studied, explained, put into context, and understood if all the facts are in the equation. It's a painful topic, to be sure, which is even more reason to leave nothing out and to prevent political agendas from getting in the way. The widespread sin of presentism poisons our understanding of such hot-button topics as slavery. Larry wrote this back in August of 2020. Terms for this way of looking at the past range from intertemporal bigotry to chronological snobbery to cultural bias to historical quackery. The clinical label is presentism. It's a fallacious perspective that distorts historical realities by removing them from their context. In sports, we call that Monday morning quarterbacking. Presentism is fraught with arrogance. It presumes that present-day attitudes didn't evolve from earlier ones, but popped, fully formed out of nowhere, into our superior heads. To a presentist, our forebears constantly fail to measure up, so they must be disdained or expunged. As one writer put it, they feel that their light will shine brighter 
if they blow out the candles of others. Our ancestors were part of an era in which they lived, not ours. History should be something we learn from, not run from. If we analyze it through a presentist prism, we will miss much of the nuanced milieu in which our ancestors thought and acted. Now, here he links a, a sla- a, an eight-minute video about facts about slavery never mentioned in school. And he says, you watch this video and you may find yourself asking, why didn't I hear this before? Well, the answer may simply be that the facts it lays out are politically incorrect, which means they're inconvenient for the, the conventional wisdom. They don't fit the presentist narrative. He says, what I personally find most fascinating about slavery is the reemergence in recent centuries of ideas that would transform the world's view of it from acceptance to rejection. 18th century Enlightenment ideals that questioned authority and sought to elevate human rights, liberty, happiness, toleration, all played a role. So did a Christian reawakening late in the 18th and early 19th centuries that produced the likes of abolitionist William Wilberforce and others. The Declaration of Independence pricked the conscience of millions who came to understand that its stirring words were at odds with the reality that many black Americans experienced on a daily basis. And as capitalism and free markets spread in the 19th century, slavery faced a competition with free labor that it ultimately could not win. Exploring the potency of those important, indeed radical forces, Larry says seems to him to be more fruitful and less divisive than playing the race card, cherry-picking evidence to support political agendas, or promoting perpetual victimhood. The prolific economist and historian Thomas Sowell has written about slavery in many of his voluminous mod- articles rather and books. For Conquests and Cultures in International History, he devoted 15 years of research and travel around the world, twice, no less. Though the book is about much more than slavery, the author reveals a great deal about the institution that few people know. He says, I close out this essay with excerpts from this soul classic and strongly urge interested readers to check out the suggestions for additional information below. Now, he gives a number of different uh, excerpts here from uh, Thomas Sowell. I'm going to let you discover those for yourself. I'll just invite you to please check out my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You'll find the link to Larry's article. This is such a good and timely thing to consider. And I'll admit it. You know, when I see, you know, um, Hannah Jones and, and the 1619 Project, to me, it just seems like, okay, this, these are just people trying to stir up trouble. Number one, to draw attention to themselves. Number two, to grift and try to enrich themselves on a subject in which they play victim. And because I'm a victim, everybody should feel sorry for me and hand me stacks of money. But they're not telling the truth. And to rewrite American history and to say that, well, you know, the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery. No, they're, they're throwing a lot of stuff out of there that, uh, that really makes no sense whatsoever. Unless, of course, there's just a political agenda that they're trying to implement. I think that's probably the case. So, having said that, we will take a quick break. I have a ton of other stuff to share with you, and I'm going to see if I, what I can pack into the final segment today. Please stay with me. I'll do my best to make it worth your while. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I've got three articles I want to touch on in this final segment. And again, you will find them in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com so you can read them in their entirety. And if you are, you know, so inclined, share them with friends. You might have some like-minded people who could really appreciate it. I hate to I hate to be, you know, a, a one-note symphony here, but you're going to hear me talking a lot about central bank digital currencies over the next little bit because I believe they are they are really on their way. And I don't like it. I think if if we want to see the final nails driven into the coffin of liberty, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, are going to be the way to do this. And and I'll just be blunt. This is a digital prison that is being constructed for us. And it's going to be sold to us in the name of, wow, but it's such a convenient thing, you know. How could anybody resist? But if you haven't started plotting how to avoid this digital prison, you need to get started sooner than later. Happens that I have a great article here. This is courtesy of ZeroHedge.com, authored by Nick Giambruno via InternationalMan.com. Five ways you can opt out of this dystopian future. How to resist CBDCs. He spells out how CBDCs enable all sorts of horrible totalitarian things. They allow governments to track and control every penny you earn, save, and spend. They're a powerful tool for politicians to confiscate and redistribute wealth as they see fit. CBDCs will make it possible for central banks to impose deeply negative interest rates, which is really just a euphemism for a tax on saving money. In other words, it costs you money to keep your money in the bank. If you don't spend it, well, then they'll tax it away from you in the form of fees. Governments could program CBDCs to have an expiration date, like some airline frequent flyer miles, forcing people to spend them, for example, before the end of the month when they'd become worthless. CBDCs will enable devious social engineering, allowing governments to punish and reward people in ways they previously couldn't. Suppose governments impose lockdowns again for flu season or so-called climate change or whatever pretext they find convenient. CBDCs could be programmed to only work in a geographic area. For example, your payments could be denied if you travel more than a mile from home during a lockdown. Suppose the people in charge want to encourage people to take a pharmaceutical product. With CBDCs, they could easily deposit money in the accounts of those who complied and deduct it from those who didn't. Undoubtedly, CBDCs will be paired with a sort of social credit system. Such a system's already in place in China today in the West. It's likely to come in a different flavor. Perhaps uh, CBDCs will be paired with an ESG score. Did you commit a thought crime on social media or perhaps read too many politically incorrect articles online? Did you exceed your monthly meat consumption allowance? Well, then expect some financial punishment thanks to CBDCs. CBDCs are without a doubt an instrument of enslavement. They represent a quantum leap backward in human freedom. And unfortunately, they are coming soon. Governments will probably mandate CBDCs as a solution when the next real or contrived crisis hits, which is likely not far off. Now, that's the bad news. You ready for some good news? Okay, the good news is CBDCs are destined to fail. Despite all the hype, CBDCs are nothing but the same fiat currency scam on steroids. It's doubtful that CBDCs can save otherwise fundamentally unsound currencies. 
as I believe all fiat currencies are. If the current fiat system is not viable, then CBDCs are even less viable as they enable the government to, to engage in even more currency debasement. Would a CBDC have saved the Zimbabwe dollar, the Venezuelan Bolivar, the Argentine peso, or the Lebanese lira? He says, I don't think so. And a CBDC won't save the U.S. dollar or the euro either. But that doesn't mean governments won't try implementing them, with immensely destructive consequences for many people. He says, while I believe that CBDCs will inevitably self-destruct, nobody knows how long it will take for that to happen. Communism was also destined to self-destruct, but it took generations. Now, he says, I don't think it'll take nearly that long for CBDCs to fail, but that's just my guess. Therefore, the big question everyone should be asking is this. What will you do when government forces everyone to use central bank digital currencies? Now, he says, I believe it's incumbent on free individuals to reject CBDCs. It'll be challenging, but the reward, maintaining your sovereignty, will be priceless. And here he lists five ways you can do just that. He says, it's important to remember remember the wise words of Ron Paul. What none of them, meaning the politicians, will admit is that the market is more powerful than the central banks and all of the economic planners put together. Although it may take time, the market always wins. So no matter what edicts, decrees, or laws that politicians pass, they will never be able to fully extinguish the desire of people to use alternatives to CBDCs, and that cracks the door open to other options. For example, consider that Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Argentina, Lebanon, and many other countries restrict the use of U.S. dollars today. However, all that does is create a black market, a thriving black market. More accurately, a free market for U.S. dollars and a parallel financial system. We can expect the same kind of dynamic if governments impose CBDCs. He says, I have no doubt significant parallel systems and underground markets will emerge naturally. Anyone who wants to avoid CBDC enslavement must learn to swim in those waters. So here are five steps anyone can take to opt out of this dystopia. Step number one, use physical gold and silver. So avoiding CBDCs means using alternative forms of money. Although people use money every day, few consider what it actually is or what makes for a good money. Asking people what is money is like asking a fish what is water. See, the fish probably doesn't even notice the water unless it becomes polluted or something is wrong. Money is a good, just like any other in an economy. It isn't a complex notion to grasp. It doesn't require you to understand convoluted math formulas or complicated theories, as gatekeepers in academia, media, and government mislead many folks into believing. Understanding money is intuitive and straightforward. Money is simply something useful for storing and exchanging value. That's it. Think of money as a claim on human time. It's like stored life or energy. Now, he goes into some great detail here as to why gold has been mankind's most enduring form of money for more than 2,500 years. I'll let you discover that on your own. Let's go to step two. He says, obtain financial sovereignty with Bitcoin. CBDCs and Bitcoin share some characteristics. They're both digital. They both facilitate fast payments from a mobile phone, but that's where the similarities end. The reality is that CBDCs and Bitcoin are entirely different in the most fundamental ways. You need the government's permission and blessing 
to use a CBDC, whereas Bitcoin is permissionless. And actually, tomorrow I'll be sharing an article from Paul Rosenberg about why Bitcoin is a, a great idea. Not so much for the, the value of the Bitcoin, but the, uh, the process. There's no place for government to grab onto. There's no permission required to engage in exchange. That's the power of it. Number, let's see, step number three, get organized locally. Get to know the people in your local community. If you avoid CBDCs, many of the convenience of society, conveniences of society will become unavailable. You'll probably be unable to shop at Walmart and large stores of any kind because they'll be roped into the CBDC system. So you're going to have to become self-sufficient and rely on your local community to obtain what you need. And that starts with knowing who can provide you with the things you want and need. Now, the Amish are incredibly successful in this regard. So he says, I'm not saying you have to go 100% Amish to avoid CBDCs, but we can learn from their societies how they work outside the traditional system and emulate the areas that make sense for our local communities. Step number four, exchange value for value. Humans invented money to solve the difficulties of barter. Well, with CBDCs, governments will have perverted money from a technology that facilitates economic exchange into a tool of enslavement. So with that in mind, barter doesn't look that bad. Learn what value you can provide to others in your local community and how you can exchange it for something you want. Step number five, become a prepper. To minimize the inconvenience of barter, it's ideal to become as self-sufficient in as many areas as possible, including stockpiling supplies and gaining survival knowledge and skills. If you already have what you need or you can produce it yourself, well, that reduces the need to get it from others. All in all, I think these are some pretty good suggestions. And I say that as somebody who's already started to work on many of them. So hopefully you'll find this article useful. It's worth taking the time to sit down and consider each of the aspects he gives in these five steps. Gold and silver, financial sovereignty with Bitcoin, get organized locally, learn how to barter, become a prepper. I think the window of opportunity, though, for getting squared away for this is pretty short. So we probably better be making our moves sooner than later. This is The Brian Hyde Show.